know, it's taken a handful of years to actually find people that uh, I c can communicate well with that I know are like up on all their beacon skills that I know, you know, we can make decisions well together in the backcountry. Because um, often that isn't like your closest friends, right? This is Gabrielle Antonoli, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, hello to everybody. I hope everybody's doing well out there. Um, I'm planning ahead a little bit and actually I'm recording this intro on the 21st of December, even though this podcast comes out on the 1st. So, happy winter solstice, everybody, and happy new year. Um, unfortunately, this last week, we've had four avalanche fatalities in the United States, three in Colorado, and one in Wyoming. Uh, certainly a reminder of how fragile some of our early season snowpacks still can be. So, please be safe out there, make good decisions. In a recent level one avalanche course that I taught, mostly in the rain, a father and son were taking the course together. The father reminisced about his early days of backcountry skiing on three pin bindings, touring around Teton Pass. He witnessed the early days and the progression of big mountain skiing through the likes of Coombs and Schmidt. The son, growing up in clearly a loving and supportive family, took part in ski racing programs and seemed to have the technical skills and maturity to develop a good foundation of safe habits in the mountains. But as I said, it was raining. It's easy to make good decisions when we aren't chasing our internal desires and powder dreams. As we were skinning up the yet-to-open ski area, the father told me that taking this avalanche course was making him really scared. I started giving him the whole shtick about how travel and decision making in avalanche train is really complex, but with a structured risk management process, blah, blah, blah. He stopped me. We stopped walking, and he looked at me with the most sincere look and said, No, I'm really scared for my boys. I should add, he also had a younger son that sounded like he was a high-level skier in the Wasatch, living the early 20-somethings dream of going to school but mostly going to Snowbird. He asked me what more he could do to help them make better decisions in the backcountry. After a few moments, I said, just talk to them. Be real about the risks and consequences of backcountry winter travel. Challenge the way they do things. Challenge their motivations for why they are doing things and provide a supportive culture that lets them roam free in the mountains in a smart way. At least I probably said some of that. It reminded me to call my parents just to say hi. It also reminded me that when I make a decision to drop into that slope, it's a lot of other people that could be affected by my decisions. Here's to 2021, everyone. May your new year be filled with happiness, health, peace, powder, and good decisions. 
Well, we're going to jump right into the feature presentation here of episode 5.10. I sat down and interviewed Gabrielle Antonoli earlier this fall, and we talk a bit about her master's research project at Montana State University, talk about her her career as an avalanche professional, and some of the ideas that she has for a, a new project that could be starting up within our community that's much needed. So um, I know you're going to enjoy this one with Gabrielle Antonoli. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. Right Pretty good. on. Where are you these days? Where are you calling from? I'm in my kitchen in Bozeman, Montana. Um, kind of trying to finish up school and figure out where to go from here. Right. And we're recording at the end of September here. What's the weather like in Bozeman? It can get cold there pretty early in the season, it seems like. Yeah, we actually, I think this is our second snowfall of the year so far. And it, I mean, it's been cold enough. It might stick around, but hopefully not. <laughs> right. It'd be nice if that got warm and melted all that that snow on the north aspects up high. Yeah. Right. Well, Gabrielle, I was hoping you could introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your your background growing up, where you're from, um, some formative influences, and 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 then bring that into where you are today and, and some of the things you're working on today. Yeah, so I grew up in Butte, Montana, um, which is about 80 miles west of Bozeman, and I grew up skiing at a little resort called Discovery uh, and really loved skiing as a kid, loved winter and moved over to Bozeman for school and started backcountry skiing when I was 18. And I feel pretty lucky that the gear was still really heavy then. (laughs) So I was able to just kind of learn really slowly that way and um, finished up undergrad and graduated, started working at the hospital here and was kind of set on a med school path. I, my undergrad was in, uh, organismal biology. So not, not in the earth sciences at all, kind of completely different and started working like three times at the hospital on the weekend. And then all midweek, just skiing every single day around Bozeman and, uh, eventually, started submitting ops to the Avalanche Center and got to know those guys and started going to some like snow and avalanche workshops in Bozeman and got to know Carl Berkland there, um, volunteered to help him dig a bunch of pits for PSDs for some of his work and kind of fell in love and decided that this should probably be a career versus kind of going the med school path and kind of leapt off that edge for that from there, but yeah. So you, you really kind of cut your teeth in backcountry skiing once you came to Bozeman and, and you were doing your undergrad at MSU. Um, what was it like for you to, to enter into the backcountry and what, what do you remember as some, some big learning points for you when you started backcountry skiing? <laughs> uh, I have to say, Well, when I first came to Bozeman and, and skied at Bridger Bowl for the first time, going from a 
subalpine resort that groomed everything to skiing powder at Bridger Bowl. Like I have a distinct memory of just double ejecting in these really skinny K2 skis, like down the main lift line <laughs> of Bridger. And then got just the fattest pair of backcountry skis with, I think they were Fritchie bindings and started touring, um, in the Bridgers and around Highlight Canyon, which is in the Northern Gallatin range and kind of met more friends and found a group that really enjoyed skiing. And we just started skiing nonstop day in and day out and kind of grew that experience from there. Right. Mm -hmm. It seems like a great place to, um, or it seems like there's a very robust backcountry community there. And at least from the outside looking in, you know, it seems like there's a, there's a great culture of at least awareness around avalanche hazard there. At least that's my perception. Um, you know, not without its challenges. It seems like with, with a flock of new undergrads, um, coming to, to Bozeman to MSU every year, you know, it's got to put a bit of a pressure on the backcountry around Bozeman. Yeah, definitely. And the Avalanche Center here is great. Like we offer so many courses and that's, you know, getting involved with those guys definitely was like a formative part of me, you know, learning about the backcountry and learning about snow and, you know, just being able to have almost these conversations. Like I remember when I first started submitting OBS and how, you know, they'd correct things I was wrong in, or maybe they saw something else when they observed and they really like having this back and forth conversation with them really started to sort of cement and form in my mind, like how I wanted to think about snow and go about that. But Babylon Center here definitely influences the community a lot. And they, they really do a ton of work with MSU to try to teach a lot of awareness courses for all the incoming undergrads, but it's definitely shifting a lot. Like just in the past 10 years, I've seen, you know, skiing around huge upticks in traffic and yeah, even now more so with COVID stuff. Right. It's going to be interesting going into this season, probably even more of an increase in numbers in the backcountry. So Gabrielle, how'd you get involved with the, you said you started digging pits with Carl and then did you get more involved with the Avalanche Center and, and some education avenues there? Yeah, I started teaching for the friends of the Avalanche Center and eventually um, I guess pastored them enough that they made me intern <laughs> for a season, which is great experience to kind of see, you know, that season it was uh, Doug, Alex, and Eric, and uh, I really enjoyed like learning to sled with them and kind of seeing how you know each person like had their own routine with forecasting differently. And um, along with that, I started teaching for Montana Alpine Guides here, so I tried to really um, I really enjoy teaching now still, and and I really enjoyed starting in that. And yeah, that's kind of how I cut my teeth as far as the education side of things went. Sure. So, um, are you still doing some guiding with Montana Alpine guides? Yeah, I primarily, um, I've mostly just like tail guided for them and then around cook city before, but I just do the rec level one teaching for them now. And then this season I'll be, uh, working for AI, 
and pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's super challenging. I think especially sort of like the entry level rec level one is just very challenging to distill everything that you'd really like to distill to these people um, in a way that truly leaves them like prepared for being safe and mitigating risk in the backcountry. Yeah, it's certainly a challenge to get all that information in in, in a couple of days and maybe a bit unrealistic to think that somebody's going to be totally prepared after two or three days of, of an avalanche course, right? And maybe we should be putting a greater emphasis on being a little bit more patient with your with your uh, maybe journey of, of learning about how to analyze and make decisions in the avalanche arena. As you started teaching avalanche courses and um, kind of it sounds like, you know, being surrounded by some some pretty formative mentors, I have to imagine. Um, how did you come about with the idea to go back to grad school in um, snow science and, and what did that process look like? I think just in these <laughs> great conversations with Carl, where we're just like digging all these PSTs, I, I think that my curiosity about snow is kind of what was the main sort of draw. And I had all these questions and, you know, Carl was like, well, why not <laughs> try to go and like apply to MSU and go to grad school? And I think, you know, we're all formed with these like conceptions or misconceptions of what a career looks like. And I think at that time, you know, I was a little younger in my early 20s and I had this idea of what like a career had to be this like official thing, like very new to me to be like a snow scientist or to actually have a job that you could balance like being outside and doing things you love and not have to sacrifice a ton for this like you know this education or work and you could mesh those two a lot better and that that's also why I chose to sort of pursue the grad school route which really just required kind of building my experience with Avalanche Center and teaching a lot um, taking the GRE and applying and having a project idea, um, which I, I applied with already kind of a set idea of what I wanted to do, which was a, I think an advantage. A little bit unique. You think that that's not always the case with folks coming into the master's program there? Uh, I think generally there's, there's definitely a first semester or two where people are assessing what, they want to do, um, which is great. Cause now, I mean, I, an advantage to mine was that I was able to collect two seasons of data of snow data. Um, a disadvantage is that now having taken all these courses and understanding like how to design projects better, I probably would have designed it totally differently. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the advantage of hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or disadvantage, depending how you look at it. <laughs> um, were you required to take some prereqs? Um, you said your undergrad wasn't in, in earth sciences per se. So did you have to catch up on some prereqs before applying to the program? Uh, I, I was pretty lucky in that I didn't, um, I had a pretty hard science degree. So I had already taken like physics and, uh, just like OCHEM and calculus. So that was all covered under that, which I felt pretty lucky for. Yeah. All right. 
So you mentioned that you came into the program with an idea of a, of a research topic. How did you, what was the process of coming up with that idea? Was it just kind of lots of hours in the skin track and, and kind of ruminating on these thoughts or talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. I mean, that kind of <laughs> actually that, that nails it perfectly. Um, it all has to do with like when you, when you're skiing a lot, right. And then you form a pretty intimate knowledge of terrain of like a place you like skiing. There's definitely like patterns you recognize with different storm flows where, you know, it'll help determine where you want to ski that day because, you know, you know, Northwest flow hits highlight a certain way, Southwest flow hits highlight a certain way. And that kind of determines which part of the drainage I want to ski in. And obviously, you know, looking at like weather models and snow tells reporting, like, you know, it's pretty common, especially like forecasters know which snow tells behave differently with different storms. Like there's kind of classic underreporter snow tells a lot of the time, at least around here. And, um, the snow tell, the upper elevation snow tell shower falls and highlight typically like under reports by about half, um, for kind of, snow amounts in the upper reaches and for other areas of the Canyon that are even lower in elevation. So it's not just this like elevation driven snowfall. Um, it's kind of just reporting off for that same general location. Uh, so that's kind of how I formed the idea to kind of have all these data points around this Canyon and check them against that. All right. A, a research project that, that has a goal of finding the best skiing. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the, the most stable, deepest snowpack we could say too. <laughs> um, so for, for those folks that don't know, I've never skied up in highlight Canyon and, and maybe you could just describe, it sounds like it's one of your favorite places to ski. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the topography in there and, and how uh, weather systems affect that region. So highlight is pretty unique shape. These really long kind of finger shaped canyons that are stacked right next to each other. And it's all volcanic and kind of very low relief, which, you know, I live in Montana, right? So my minimum approach is about five miles. <laughs> uh, but yeah, really long approaches. You can get up to 9,000 feet without, really entering any avalanche terrain, which makes it nice for assessing like upper elevation snowpack or things like that in times where avalanche danger may be higher. Uh, so I just skied around there a lot and found different ways to connect different parts of the Canyon and really wanted to design my master's thesis to <laughs> have required skiing, which I then regretted when I was taking a full <laughs> class load and having to, you know, ski across to my little boards to like check them every three days. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just really neat Canyon in that you can get around, you know, 27 square kilometers of it pretty easily if you're shuffling pretty fast. And so I, it might be helpful for listeners. I just pulled up some Google earth imagery of, of the Canyon. And so it, it runs mostly north south right is that mm -hmm. correct um yeah. and and just talk a little bit more about the topography um and how it's situated within the the range 
Uh, so generally it gets favored for like a Northwest flow, um, uh, as well as the bridger as well. But anytime anything flows kind of Northwest through there, I feel like it, in my experience, it kind of gets trapped in those canyons a little bit and will snow pretty hard in different areas of them too. Um, often kind of the Western half of the canyon just due to wind too, won't get scoured a lot. Um, and then with like a Southwest flow, generally like the upper portion of the, the main drainage is still favored, but it'll just behaves really interestingly with sort of the tight canyons too, kind of slotted right next to one another, but very distinctly separate from one another as well. Um, they're kind of, again, like finger shaped. So whether kind of will get stuck in one portion of the canyon and snow a lot more there. And then, you know, I can go to a similar elevation and another section of canyon and there'll be less snow. It seems like your research has some big implications, not just for snow and avalanche forecasting, but also for the water of the the city of Bozeman, right? Yeah, totally. So one of the reasons I even chose Highlight to study uh, was not only because it just sees a ton of backcountry user traffic, uh, but because it is the water source for Bozeman and parts of the Gallatin Valley. And that makes it pretty important, especially as the city just grows and grows and grows. That is, it is, um, makes it important for us to be able to know how much snow is up there for water. Right. So talk a bit about it, your methods, how, what sort of, um, data were you collecting and, and how did you go about that? Uh, so I kind of wanted to obviously have a large fieldwork component to my project and just decided on the storm board being sort of like my data point for collection. So I built a bunch of storm boards just out of plywood and PVC and plastic flange. I tried to make them lightweight like most storm boards I see like at a ski resort are kind of metal. I didn't want to have to haul that around. So made, uh, the first year I had 10, the second year I had 12 and kind of chose spots around highlight to put them um, that I knew were pretty sheltered and then wouldn't get just wind affected snow, kind of just like open meadows that were flat. Um, and I just spread them out across those kind of three fingers of Canyon um, and like paralleling elevation bands in different parts of each. So that I could have, you know, a sample point from, the furthest east canyon at 7,000 feet and then one in Flanders at 7,000 feet, one in the main fork at 7,000 feet and then so on and so forth up to 9,000 feet. And then I just would ski around and collect like snow water equivalent off of them as well as, you know, take depth and measure. I also did like total height of snow each time I would go. Um, but kind of SWE was the most important thing to them. Sure. And so how often would you collect this data? Uh, the first season, I uh, that was the winter of 2017, which was like a remarkably high snow year here. And I 
I had thought that usually a skiing run highlight, you know, you get these like storms that flow through and then you'd have like two or three days of high pressure. And I was kind of relying on that. And that winter, I think February, there were two days of high pressure. And so I tried to check them at least after a foot of snowfall, either cumulatively or in one storm. And that was pretty hard to do with just the variation in high pressure days. And so the second season, I just tried to catch specific flows. So, you know, every time a big Southwest flow is coming through, I like cleared off all the boards, then it would snow one storm onto each board and I'd go ski and check. It was also pretty difficult because there, there's sort of a rapid sequence of storms at times that were coming in different directions that I wanted to capture. So it'd be like, you know, take two days, clear the boards three days later, you know, take another two days, clear the boards. Um, yeah, a lot of skiing around (laughs) at the same time as taking a big course load too. It sounds like a hectic winter a little bit. Yeah. I was lucky to definitely lucky to have some, help here and there with field work, um, especially during that year, which I'm super grateful for, but yeah, it, it turned into hundreds and hundreds of miles in highlight. <laughs> and I kind of fatigued on going there for a while. <laughs> yeah. I bet. Did you at least have some good, good, uh, terrain to make some nice safe turns on your way out? Definitely. Yeah. And there was, it was pretty funny. I'd usually be the first person setting all these skin tracks too. And often I place these boards, uh, often, you know, meadows that kind of weren't leading to any really decent skiing and <laughs> folks would often just follow my skin track <laughs> straight to the board. So that was kind of a funny thing to try to buffer. <laughs> so what are some findings so far in your data set? So uh, the second year, I also put a storm board kind of right by the snow tell. Um, and I, I think the snow tell is accurate and reports accurately for that, like one spot where it's at, which is pretty, you know, the snow tells will, were put in, in the, you know, eighties, I think a lot of them. And I think it's just pretty shielded from trees. And so it's right. And like all the, sort of instrumentation works on it properly. Um, but it's definitely, you know, at least so far what I see, not, not reporting accurately for how much water is held in the Canyon. Um, there's definitely like a discrepancy there. And I guess my thoughts more with looking at my data and in thinking about any sort of like remote monitoring of snow, um, especially now as like climate's changing and everything. Um, sort of how to bridge that gap. Obviously for avalanche forecasting, it has this implication of like, right. If you see six inches reported at a snow tell and you're forecasting, you know, a danger rating based off of like a lower snow amount that has an impact. And I think like, you know, it's fortunate that the guys here like have knowledge of that terrain too and know how to interpret that. And I guess the goal of my project was more um, an attempt to quantify that intuitive process that a forecaster goes through in their head because they know the terrain and they know the flow and they know the snow tell. Um, 
And I just wanted to set about kind of quantifying that more, which is actually very hard (laughs) as it turns out. And I think the future of that will be probably a lot more um, use of remote sensing stuff as that continues to improve. And, you know, often like in the office, in the snow science office, right, we've tinkered around with like little raspberry pies or things like that and kind of less expensive, more portable, like small weather stations that, you know, could be built and put out in the area. And obviously that's all kind of just conjecture, but an idea that, you know, might be kind of where the future of that goes, especially as snow lines change and rain lines change. We're going to have to be able to adapt to that um, without, you know, one piece of monitoring equipment that's on the ground stuck there. That's very expensive. Do you know if there's any talk anywhere about like a crowdsourced real time um, storm sampling, essentially, you know, like has anybody done any work with setting up stations in a highly visited area such as Highlight Canyon? And like you can go up to station two and figure out how much storm snow there is. And then from that information, you know, it's crowdsourced and that goes into a database that you can text in a, a, you know, probably not snow water equivalent, but at least maybe storm totals and total snow depth. Anything like that going on that you've heard of? Yeah, I think I've heard of like community snow ops, which, um, I went on the site and then I saw like a bunch, I've never submitted anything. And then I saw a bunch of my like snow depths and I think it's fed in from snow pilot. So yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, a huge asset to have, especially with more people skiing around Bozeman, right? Everyone sticks their probe in the snow and puts in a number. It's pretty useful to get that kind of information. Yeah. Totally. And, and as we know, it's super helpful to submit any type of observation to the avalanche center, whether it's snow depth, whether it's recent avalanches, whether it's signs of stability, you know, like even, even, um, you know, if you don't see signs of instability, that's good information for the forecasters to get to. So I always like to make that plug. Um, Gabrielle, what was the biggest difference in snowfall that you saw from like a given storm throughout the canyon? Uh, I'd have to say there is, so there's a lower hotel called Lick Creek Hotel and that was reporting no snow. And then up high, there's probably like eight to 10 inches of snow, um, which is pretty significant. (laughs) Uh, but often, yeah, again, the snow tell, you know, could report a foot of new snow and I'd be up high skiing two feet of blower pal. <laughs> like, it's pretty great. Um, but yeah, again, significant if given, you know, certain storm conditions that can make pretty high avalanche hazard pretty quickly, obviously. Um, yeah. Did you notice a, dis- a bigger discrepancy with a uh, Southwest flow over Northwest flow or vice versa? Uh, I'd say the north. Uh huh. Definitely more with the north. Um, just because this one section of canyon known as Flanders, which is just this kind of 
like you have the main fork and the east fork and then there's this tiny like slot canyon um, known as Flanders kind of stuck in there and uh, it's not skied very often because it's kind of really hard to get into and there's just for whatever reason just always a ton of snow back there and yeah I mean I I would have loved to put a storm board at 9,000 feet back there or just higher up um, but that would have been too hard (laughs) would have made your field days even that much longer it sounds like yeah yeah generally took like two days minimum to get to all the boards and it was about 26 miles um to get to them all wow it seems like this was a very work intensive research project um how were you able to kind of balance your life out during some of the brunt of the research I, w- I would think that if somebody was doing a lot of research and had a love of skiing, they might use skiing in the backcountry as a outlet to to escape from their research project. But yours was very much uh, <laughs> embedded with your passion for backcountry skiing. So what were some ways that you found like a nice balance in your life while, while being pretty busy with this and, and still trying to enjoy skiing just for the sake of skiing? Uh, I mean, to be totally honest, I feel like that year I didn't find balance. <laughs> like I definitely burned out pretty hard, uh, especially on just like that area. Like I, I love the train of highlight and I love that I, you know, could lose my headlamp in a white out there and find my way out. And I love that feeling of that, but I definitely really fatigued on that area and tried to balance that, I guess, by skiing other places, even with limited time. And, um, I think last year was probably a harder balance year for me with just finding a good way to use those data points that, you know, there are a lot of data points. Like I got maybe, you know, 12 boards and 12 storms total, which seems like a lot until you try to do these more, intensive like interpolation methods with it um it's just not that much data uh and so i think that was kind of the harder year to balance like a lot of computer work and figuring out exactly what my question was um and sort of balancing the analysis part of it was a lot harder and for that i kind of wasn't doing field work so i was able to ski (laughs) Um, what do you think the biggest implication that your research is going to have on the, on the community as a whole? That's a great question. I think it is a very specific question, right? Cause I, I, you know, I'm looking at this one Canyon in this one area and I think the implications are broader in that, like we will need to start looking at, you know, different methods of remote sensing versus like just a snow tell and combining different methods and getting like creative with how we, you know, get all these data points. And I think there is value in my project in that it would be, you know, if I were to design it again, I mean, it would be a great way to like validate, um, like, you know, remote sensing or like a snowpack model that you, we're able to calibrate to the snow tell there and run and then back validate with field data. 
Like, I think that's kind of where the broader implication is um, having that kind of project structure that way. Right. Did you, did this research uh, build upon other research that had gone on um, with other MSU students? And part two to that question is, do you see there room for another master's student to do some research kind of um, picking up where you left off? Is there, is there more room for this in the future? Yeah, I think especially with highlight being so accessible for backcountry skiing, I think that there will always be value in like that field data too, and being able to access that field data. And I think definitely could build on um, my project or at least the structure of it um, for, again, like if you're looking at Sentinel data or you're looking at, you know, using radar with that more and more, you know, being tested. Like I, I don't see why you couldn't build on it. As, as you say, Gabrielle, you've dipped your toe in a lot of different realms um, within the snow and avalanche arena uh, roles of being an educator, patroller guide um, your work with the avalanche center as well. It seems like a great foundation for a budding avalanche professional. Um, what sort of work, do you enjoy the most? Oh, that's a great question too. Uh, I really like educating a lot and uh, yeah, just going through the mental calculus of trying to improve each year of like how I go about doing that. Um, I enjoy that process. And I also really enjoy guiding for that reason, just kind of showing people something new um, not only that, but I, I often feel like I gain more from students or like people I've taken guiding than they've gained from me. Like it's definitely with Montana growing um, and having grown up here, it's been hard to see that transition over a decade of, you know, it changing from this very quiet place to having all these new people. And often, especially in these like smaller mountain towns, there's this, um, like, at least I know I experienced it when I first started skiing of this, like, this is our backyard kind of protectiveness. And with teaching more and guiding more, uh, it's made me so much more appreciative and open to other people and other people moving here. Like, I definitely really appreciate all those connections I've made and, and what people show me and tell me about their lives. And yeah, so I'd have to say like educator guide forecaster um i've really enjoyed doing that and i was only able to volunteer patrol for bridger bowl for a year but that was i felt really lucky to be there when doug richmond was still there and um yeah glean kind of glean little bits of knowledge from every avenue i feel like that's been really useful to kind of have a structure for what i want to do moving forward yeah, it seems like a really well-rounded experience base that you have. So, given that, what, what where do you see yourself in in the next five years or so? Or so? Any dream jobs that you got your sights on? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would love to be forecasting somewhere. Uh, right now, I'm 
probably going to finish up my master's remotely and do a research assistantship for HP Marshall in Boise. Um, Cause I'm also kind of unsure if I want to pursue a PhD or not. And that's kind of also on the table. So I don't know, in five years, I, I'd really like to be kind of working in all realms. Like there's this sort of limitation, I guess, if I go the PhD way of like being on this track of academia. But I'd like to think that if I, you know, I'm also taking AMGA courses and continuing guiding, like I try to balance it with that. And I feel like kind of dovetailing different realms of the snow science world with like being out there and skiing and skiing with people, like melding those together is ideally where I want to be. And I'm not really sure what that looks like yet, but I feel like I kind of have to create it too. As a younger female avalanche professional, um, what are your thoughts on gender inequality within the professional avalanche community? Yeah, I definitely think it's still a thing um, that is getting better. And uh, it's important to be aware of that and also patient with that process. And I feel like especially more in recent years, uh, the best thing I can do is um, support other women and uh, be really open to kind of everyone and to supporting them. Like often I'll get emails um, from women interested in the MSU snow science program and um, generally they're coming from a diverse array of backgrounds, whether they've like worked for the snow survey or, um, just been guiding or just been ski patrolling. And they've, you know, often been really hesitant or like, I don't know if I have enough or enough of this or enough of that to apply. And I always try to be like, yes, you have enough. Like you should apply. You can get these things. Like it's interesting to reflect even on like avalanche education as, like that's, you know, a pretty expensive tier as well for a lot of people. Like some people can't afford to start with like a rec level one and go through these stages. And so I tried to like people who don't have that sort of structure or base yet, um, support them in getting that as well as like, you know, being involved with their avalanche center and going through all these kind of like micro steps that help you kind of track that path that way. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, it seems like just kind of creating a more open, inviting community to anybody, regardless of, of any of our differences, whether it's gender or race or, um, political affiliation or anything like that. Just kind of, I always, I've always seen the, the snow community is, is a pretty diverse community, um, in terms of at least, at least political boundaries, you know, it, it seems like it always kind of fades away out there. Um, I'm, I, I'm going to save myself from rambling here, but, <laughs> but it seems like now more than ever, we need to put some effort and some energy and some intention behind making sure that our community is, is nice and open to anybody who, who wants to um, embark on a, a snowy adventure, you might say. So, Gabrielle, I've heard some rumblings out there amongst the people 
that you might have another project in the hopper. I was just curious <laughs> what what uh what project this might be and and some of your thoughts behind it. Yeah, so I've sort of on the side been working on uh, the idea of an organized support structure that offers tools um, and resources for both professional and recreational um, users to utilize in the event of like an avalanche accident or near miss. Um, Yeah. So the goal is just to have more structure and more low barrier resources that are organized all in one place and cash for people um, both to find on their own and utilize or for like avalanche centers to, to use just kind of a catch all um, for, you know, any sort of trauma or accident that may happen that's avalanche related. And so are there any other programs like this in place in other in other communities? Uh, Definitely. Like the American Alpine Club has the Climbers Grief Fund, which was uh, sort of the basis of of this idea. We're actually just seeing um, the Climbers Grief Fund be successful and also having my own personal experience of trying to seek out um, assistance and seeing that proof of concept work with the Climbers Grief Fund has really, uh, I guess, underlined the need for it in the avalanche community for me, as well as shown that it, it can be really successful and beneficial for people. So how do you see this moving forward? I, again, and this is by no means reinventing the wheel, right? Obviously, almost every avalanche review has an article about trauma or dealing with trauma or pre-stress, you know, training tools. And I guess my idea is more to collect all these resources and utilize all of these people that are doing such great work on the same issues and sort of just have a, a catch-all for them and a place where they can be housed. Um, that's easy for, again, like the professional and recreational users to find and utilize and that's kind of the idea is take all these great ideas and concepts by people and um, mesh that with, you know, some other forms of resources like a directory and funding and put them all in one place. That's really easy for people to benefit from. Right. Sounds like a awesome idea. Um, are you searching out some, some funding for this project? Yeah, definitely. We're currently um, looking for sort of some initial ground floor funding for it um, and reaching out to some companies and that sort of thing to, uh, yeah, really needs to get off the ground right now. So, All right. You all heard that. We could utilize some funding from the community or community organizations or companies to help fund this much needed project. Thanks Gabrielle for spearheading this. I was hoping you could maybe share a story of a, of a lesson learned that you've had in the backcountry, or maybe just a pivotal moment in your career or um, a mentorship uh, remembrance, something like that. Anything come to mind for you? 
Hmm. Yeah, I definitely um, really appreciate both Carl um, Berklin and Jordi Hendricks having them as two really supportive mentors has been just invaluable for me. Um, but not just that academically. I mean, I have a, I'm really grateful to have some excellent ski partners here that operate on the same mindset that I do that, you know, it's taken a handful of years to actually find people that, uh, I can communicate well with that I know are like up on all their beacon skills that I know, you know, we can make decisions well together in the backcountry. Um, cause often that isn't like your closest friends, right? Sometimes they're, you know, it takes a different sort of hot sauce to have that connection with someone in the backcountry. And I, yeah, I'm pretty grateful for that. And especially the last few years being busy with school and that kind of thing definitely shifts your mindset from just having your head in the snow all the time like skiing every day, you know, putting my pet in snow pilot, looking at photos of avalanches, looking at the weather, getting up the next day and doing the same thing is quite a bit different than having school in between those times. And, um, yeah, I've been lucky to have people to go ski with and help me bridge that kind of mental gap while I've been in school and keep me safe and make good decisions with me. So, yeah. Do you, you ever feel like you've gotten away with anything in the backcountry? Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as you said earlier, the, the hindsight's twenty twenty, and I just <laughs> reflecting on when I was learning the backcountry ski, I mean, I feel like often I was sort of backseat decision-making. And I think one of the bigger transitions I've made in the past you know, half decade is being very active about communication and making decisions and being very assertive about, you know, what I see in the snow and um, what I observe and also kind of making sure that other people I ski with are on the same page. But I've definitely gotten away with a lot when I was younger. And now, um, yeah, I'm still surprised here and there. <laughs> well, I, th- I think we all are from time to time. It's just all about the margin that you've created to to be able to handle that surprise, right? Yeah, really. Having nice big margins, great thing, or at least even knowing where they are. Like often that's what makes I feel like teaching really hard as you're trying to teach people about margins and risk and they kind of, don't really totally have the awareness of where those lines even are or what that risk even looks like. So it's been good to refine that over the years just for myself. Where can people contact you if they have questions about your research or if they want to find more about uh, avalanche education opportunities in the Gallatin Valley, stuff like that? Where can they reach out to you? Uh, Well... My email is listed on my Montana State uh, student page. So that's always pretty effective. And as far as like avalanche awareness and classes go, like mtavalanche.com is a great resource for anyone looking to take an awareness class or uh, look at all the 
the recreational courses that are offered in Bozeman all season. They have those all listed. Um, so excellent. Yeah. And, and give Gabrielle a follow on Instagram. She's got some great content on there. That's always quite inspiring um, from her latest adventure into the mountains. So it seems like you're, you're always getting after it. Trying to. Thanks. <laughs> All right. We'll have a good, uh, safe start to your winter and, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Thanks, Caleb. That was Cheers. fun. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that interview with Gabrielle. Thanks so much for taking the time, Gabrielle. And as she said, if you'd like to get in touch with her, find more about her research, or maybe to get involved or help fund this new uh, project of hers having to do with compiling resources and tools for those affected by avalanches, um, you can find her contact information through her student page at Montana State University. If you're having trouble, feel free to reach out to me and I'll put you in contact. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. If you're really enjoying the podcast, take the next step and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Appreciate your your help spreading the word. Of course, you can give us a follow on the socials on Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you want to reach out further, you can email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. While you're there writing that email, send us a screenshot of your subscription to the podcast, and you'll be entered to win a brand new El Profesional Saw by Primo Snow and Avalanche. Okay, and we're going to be doing that drawing in just a few days from now when we have this bonus episode release with matt promomo on january 5th 2021 and don't forget to help us out by going to the show notes and clicking on some of those links do your shopping on probably some products that you're going to buy anyways we've got 20 percent off some social cbd products there um, we've got 15 percent off hagen ski mountaineering um, you just got to click through the links we get a little kickback from that and you get a discount there's also a great deal on 10% off your next pair of Wonder Alpine skis. I know you're going to like that Intention 110 or the Vital 100. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. To see more of his work or to get in touch with him, you can go to his website, www.miket.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-A. Music today was performed by Shoal and Dub with the tracks Cultures at the beginning and Out Rhythm taking us out of the hour. These tracks were used with permission of the artist. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.